Hello and welcome to the Gray Area, where I interview developers, talk about games and news, and share stories about our guests. My name is Genesee Gray, and this is episode 125, and a very special, uh, kind of small episode for you, that took place during a live stream for Good Shepherd Entertainment. It was to the benefit of the One Gamer Fund. One Gamer Fund is a partnership of the Able Gamers Charity, Child's Play, Games for Change, Global Game Jam, the IGDA Foundation. Foundation, stack up and take this all coming together to help support uh, the gaming industry and basically enable people to have better gaming experiences. So at this point, uh, that's what that was for. And I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Luke Dickin, who is the chair of the IGDA Foundation. And we had some great discussion. This is taking place just during a segment of it, where we were talking about AI and his history of data science and the games that he was designing at Zynga. So it's just a short section of that, but hopefully you will enjoy it and support the One Gamer Fund if you choose to, but the IGDA Foundation is pretty awesome too. So check out Dr. Luke Dickin in this special episode. The MIT Media Lab... Um uh, did uh, the IGDA chapter in Boston. I, uh, I actually, one of the funnest sessions that I've ever given in my entire career. Um, the, the back room of this kind of run-down Irish bar in Boston. Mm-hmm. And, like, it was, the, it was the best room I've ever played because, like, everybody's been drinking, I'd been drinking, and then I stand up and do this talk about the future of AI. And, like, <laughs> I just get, like, Let's go. And it's actually, I don't, it's not common for me to do uh, a talk and have a bottle of beer in my hand. And it's certainly absolutely unheard of for me to end up getting a, like somebody brought me a new bottle of beer as I was doing my talk. <laughs> Best session I've ever done. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of doing all this world, a, world tour of AI. Uh, and it turned out that I went over to Casual Connect because I'd won a third IGDA scholarship. Um, Everyone says that that's really amazing, but I've never gone. What's that like? At Casual Connect? Yeah. It's a really interesting show. It's very mobile-centric. Um, and one of the things... I, I, when you tell people they think it's like some kind of dating... You know, oh, well, I can see that, yeah. Um, but it's not... No, it's not... Well, I mean, it's... Uh, wow. <laughs> it's a little bit that, but mobile business. Uh, I think it's probably the way that I would frame it. It's very, um, it's very vendor centric. So there's a lot of people kind of wanting you to use their SDK for this or that or the other. Uh, lots of kind of uh, mobile centric talks. Um, I got a lot out of the experience, um, but uh, anyway, sorry. Back, back to your back no, to no, your. No, 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 absolutely. So. Um, uh, so one of the things that, w- that was actually being held there was the IGDA Summit at Casual Connect, which was a thing we used to do. Uh, so I, I spoke at that. Uh, I think I gave three sessions at that one. Uh, most of them were micro talks, so it doesn't really count. But um, yeah, that, so that was a fun one. But it was also like the, this kind of opportunity to engage with more of the IGDA leadership. And I'd become the first person in the world to win three of these awards. Um, and kind of as a result of that, they decided that I shouldn't win any more of them. And the way that they were going <laughs> to... Decided that the way Enough that... for you. Basically, yeah. And then what they said was, well, you've won it three times. What if you ran that program instead? And I was like, ah, I know what you're doing. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. It, was, um, it was a really good opportunity because it, it kind of, at this point, like, 
you know, after the first one, I was like, I'm in debt to this organization now. And then after the third one, I was like, okay, I have a life debt to this organization now. <laughs> um, so it was a really good kind of opportunity to start stepping up and doing more. And, and running that program was, um, in those days, it was, I mean, it still is hard work, don't get me wrong. But in those days, there was no process. There was no nothing. Everything was on fire. Um, everything was last minute. There was no budget for anything. You know, back then, if if somebody was kind of going to a conference to run the scholars program, they were probably paying for it themselves because we just didn't have the resources to do anything. So not only were you volunteering your time, but you were you were volunteering your bank account as well. <sighs> um, and it, it was brutal. But at the same time, like for me, it made a lot of sense because it kind of allowed me an excuse for hey, I'm, I've got to go to this conference and run this thing, uh, but I also get to go to the conference. I get to, to kind of uh, build up my network and, and kind of meet with people as a result of that. Um, so running that, that kind of program really gave me a lot of experience in kind of uh, in those kinds of things. And then kind of uh, about maybe six months later, uh, there was an opportunity for people to... Every year the IGDA has a, an election for its board of directors. Um, and I sort of thought about it. I was like, I, you know, this is another way that I could give back to this organization. And I sort of said, ah, you know what? I'm really trying to focus on my research. I'm kind of stretched already. I'm not actually going to run for election. And a bunch of people turned around. And this, off the back of the, the uh, AI world tour, you know, I connected with a lot of chapter leaders around the world. And they all said, no, you should do that. Um, but I haven't got any time. No, I think you should do it. So, <laughs> we don't care you're doing it. Basically, yeah, I, I was a little bit of peer pressure there, um, but it was actually a, a really, really good opportunity because there weren't that many people who were participating in the IGDA from overseas, uh, from a, from a US centric point of view overseas, um, who at the same time had the breadth of, of kind of connections to actually get elected, uh, and that that was really why, you know, that's why all the pieces fit together in such a way that I actually did get elected to the IGDA Board of Directors in 2013. Um, and then from there, transitioned across. But, you know, my focus has really been on, because uh, the original question, like, 20 minutes ago, <laughs> was um, sort of what what my, you know, what the things that I was kind of most proud of about the foundation, I, I think, I think I'm yes. paraphrasing, but, um, you know, I, I think that one of the things that, that I'm really conscious of is through the IGDA and the IGDA Foundation, I've had these amazing opportunities to kind of uh, springboard or springboard, is that the word I'm looking for? Anyway, yes. jumpstart jump my career. Uh, I would not be sitting here in San Francisco right now if it wasn't for the IGDA uh, and the, the opportunities that I've been able to kind of get through that. And the reason that I kind of am so passionate about what we do is because I want to make sure that those opportunities are available for, for more people and, and more different kinds of people. You know, I was lucky as a, an award recipient. And, you know, back in those days, I was saying that the volunteers uh, had no money for, for travel or for hotels or anything. You know, they were all funding it themselves. At the same time, so were the people who were getting the awards. You know, we were finding out maybe a month before the conference that we were going to be able to attend. And, like, you know what? what accommodation and flights are like, you know, a, mm. a month away from want to travel to GDC in San Francisco, which is already insanely oh, expensive. No. Like, you're just like, okay, well, that just commits me to this insane cost. Yeah. And, you know, 
I I didn't like that myself, but you know, I was privileged enough that I was in a place where I could just go, you know what, I can do it, let's do it. Um, there are a lot of people who are not in that position, and I'm, one of the things that I'm proudest of right now is that when we build a new program, and, and we've uh, so we've taken uh, ownership of the IPA scholars uh, into the foundation itself. Um, a bunch of reasons for that, but it, it aligned so well with our mission that it, it worked out very well for me to kind of bring it with me as I moved over to, to take charge of the foundation. Um, one of the things that we've been really proactive about is kind of making sure that we consider not just uh, giving the opportunity, but who has access to the opportunity and, and the economic advantage and the economic privilege that we were kind of demanding of our recipients prior to this. You know, it's not necessarily realistic for somebody who's trying to like you know imagine somebody who's maybe a single parent putting themselves through college they're not in a position where they can drop everything and just fly to gdc and not have <laughs> any financial support there surprise um, just regular people like me can't do it either well this is also true um you know but the, the you know so now those awards come with uh, a financial stipend to, to offset that doesn't we're not at a place where we can offset it 100%, but it's there. You know, uh, we actually we book. In fact, I think we're doing it soon. We book a block of rooms in a hotel. I think we're getting 20 or 30 for GDC this year, and you know that is now taken care of. If you if you want to participate in that, you know it. It we will kind of deduct it from the cash that we would have given you otherwise, but it's taken care of. You don't have to worry about it. And that kind of so the the programs that we offer are hugely relevant and, and important to me, both at a kind of strategic level, but also at a personal investment level. Like I've benefited from this stuff. But that means that I also see the problems, and, and I, that, that's why I'm here and what I'm trying to fix. Yeah, that's great. I mean, giving people the opportunity to experience something that they probably could not on their own and get kind of further into the industry. And, and, and in ways that they couldn't on their own. Like, uh, one of the things that the IGDA has is you know, at this point, it's a 20-something year history. And there are people who will give their time to the IGDA. And even if it's a group of students, who wouldn't do it if it was just a, a random group of students? And that is where we can leverage our kind of brand and image, effectively, to kind of, you know... Um, so Jen's a good example. Um, Jen, the first time I met Jen McLean was at Casual Connect when I was an IGDA scholar. And she sat down and gave us an hour of her time to talk to, I think there were probably six or eight of us there, uh, talking about kind of her career, her experiences, and all this kind of stuff. If I, as a student, sent her an email, like I'm not going to say she wouldn't have spent an hour with us because it, like Jen's a great person and she would probably have tried, but it's not it's not scalable. It's not something that, that can actually happen for people outside of these kinds of programs. Got you. Um, so it's not just about kind of getting them there and getting them to the conference. It's also about giving them these experiences that, like, you know, they can only get by being part of something like this. Awesome. Well, speaking of developer experiences and people that are kind of into the industry and learning more, we're going to talk about your history a little, if it's okay, with AI and data science, uh, specifically maybe at games at Zynga, but generally generally in your studies. So will AI be taking over the world? And if so, will it force us to farm adorable animals? Yes. Okay. Good to know. Are they only cats? Uh, I, so 
the first uh, the game that really turned me on to, to AI properly uh, was a game called Creatures uh, when I was <laughs> yeah. okay I, so that's not the response that I normally get uh, I've read about your love for this game I'm going to say I have not played it but oh okay okay so you've been doing your research I love it I have um, so Creatures was a kind of mid 90s kind of game which is why I normally get blank stares when I start talking about it um, but it was effectively, uh, it was basically a Tamagotchi on steroids. <laughs> okay. Um, so you'd got this kind of side-scrolling virtual world, and you'd got these cute little adorable um, creatures. Um, and you could teach them things, and you could kind of pet them and stroke them, and, and with the mouse, obviously. not. There and was call no, them George. Uh, you, I think you could rename them, so yes, you could. <laughs> um, uh you couldn't squeeze them too tight, I don't think, but uh, you could <laughs> discipline them. Um, but it was kind of this, this, this it, it was like a sandbox environment, effectively, where you could interact with these creatures and teach them things and train them so that they would do things. Uh, and then there were Grendels, and the Grendels were mean lizard-type things, and they would come and beat the creatures up, so you had to teach them. Oh, my goodness. Violent. Uh, it, it was this, it was a, a phenomenally good game, but, well... It was a great, it was a good enough game. It was fun. <laughs> um, I should probably not overhype it too much because it wasn't like it well, wasn't for the game. era. You know, back it, back in the days exactly. where you were allowed to just you know slaughter things in the nineties and no one worried about yes. small children's you know, health. The, the the super interesting thing about this game was that the company that made it was actually a spin out from uh, the University of Cambridge, and. Um, everything that they were doing was backed by. AI and it, what they were driving towards were, was uh, an artificial life. Hmm. So the creatures themselves were being represented as neural networks, and um, you could breed the creatures. So you would actually kind of pass traits on from parents to, to children. Ah, interesting. So, Recessive genes. Exactly. Um, and this was like, it was phenomenally cool to kind of look at this and go, and I must have been, I, I, I don't know if I, I, 13, 15, something like that. I just looked at this and went, this is the future. This is what I'm going to do with my life. This is, this is it. This is, <laughs> this is the most interesting thing I've ever seen. Um, and uh, from there, I sort of went, okay, how, how do, what do I do next? So I started reading research papers uh, as only an obnoxious 13-year-old can. Uh, I didn't understand what the hell I was reading, but I'm reading these kind of AI papers and things, trying to trying to figure out this stuff and work out what all of it is. Um, and again, right place, right time, slash very lucky. Um, that Back then I was living in Glasgow in, the, in Scotland. Um, but I was kind of looking at where I was going to go to university and, and what I was going to do. And it turns out that the University of Edinburgh, like, it has one of the best AI programs uh, basically in the world. Um, and I know that's what you're supposed to say about the place you graduated from, but <laughs> um, it was it was a very novel experience, I think, because we got um, we were getting lectured by people who had invented things in the field, like um, we, you know, they were literally turning around at the start of the of the syllabus and saying, "You need to buy the book that I wrote that everybody else uses." Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's kind of. You know, the, the parallel that I drew at the time was like you're, you're in a place where you, you're being taught biology, you know, and you're being taught the broad sense of biology, but you're being taught it by clocks and mellish. 
you know, the, the DNA guys, you know, at the end of the day, these guys were the pioneers and now they're kind of in teaching positions. Great. But still like you're being taught by legends. Um, and it was, it was kind of a real great opportunity. But the nice thing about it being at Edinburgh was that it was, it was the ideal distance from home. You know, it was two hours away. That's the perfect. An hour and a half to two hours. That's where you want to be. Yeah. Enough for laundry, so, but not like enough it, for anyone to ex- visit. Exactly. That is exactly <laughs> right. Um, and like, I was lucky enough that I just got an unconditional offer to attend and, uh, uh, I got to kind of screw around throughout my entire final year at high school, uh, and then just head to college. Um, kind of continued to screw around a bit there. <laughs> um, okay. Well, here's a question. What's the difference? And, and I guess I'm asking this, you know, in the perspective and the spectrum of games, like deliberative reasoning versus calculated reasoning. Like, what's the difference between those two? Because it sounds like basically what you were doing at Zynga is trying to make this like more efficient and, and fast, etc. But I, I'm not sure I understand the difference between those two. So, um, you're, so I'm going to break the fourth wall a little bit. Uh, when you say calculated reasoning, you, do you mean something specific or is this something that you've read somewhere about me? Well, I mean, I can take it into things like Farmville or things like I've worked with other MMO companies in the past and working with AI large armies, etc. Uh, okay, so, um, so, so let, me, uh, let me set the stage a little bit. Um, so deliberative reasoning, uh, so the reason that I asked the question is that my PhD is literally about bridging the gap between deliberative reasoning and uh, what we call reactive systems. I can uh, read. Um, <laughs> that's why I asked you, because I know uh, that's it. Okay. Um, so uh, so the, the difference there is that so deliberative reasoning um, is like, um, imagine a game of chess where you're kind of thinking multiple steps ahead. Okay. Um, so you're trying to reason out... Um, like the the where things are going to go and what the best thing to do right now is in the context of where I want to go eventually. Okay. Um, so uh, you can imagine that that might be really computationally complex. Uh, there's a lot going on in that kind of assessment because not only have you got kind of a breadth of things that you might do now, but you've got to kind of think about like what's going to happen in 10 moves maybe. What's going to happen uh, in terms of collision in a game, or in terms well, of what? Just the, so, so in the in the chess example, like it, you would probably never want to apply this to like collision reasoning. Um, but you know, I'm going to move this pawn, and then he could do this, or he could do that, uh, and then if he did this, then I want to do that. So just in terms of like that that kind of, I'm going to do a thing, they're going to do a thing. Okay. I'm going to do a thing, they're going to do anticipation. A thing. Okay. Yeah. So, you, you, but if you if you kind of visualize that as a, as so, right now I'm I'm at a little circle, and I can do a bunch of things that are just lines coming out of the circle, and then they go to their circle and they can do a bunch of lines coming out of their circle. You can imagine how that turns into this really complex like tree structure of different branches coming all the way down. Mm-hmm. There are at the at the very bottom of that. Sometimes you win. Sometimes you lose. Yeah, um, I guess on the predictability, I mean, you can't predict perfectly what anyone would say. Well, so if if you if you if you work on the basis that I I know what move I'm going to make, and then you can do A or B, and you can actually you can map it out to a point where you know exactly every move that could be made, and whether you won or lost if you if you did that. 
Gotcha. Uh, so that's deliberative reasoning in a nutshell. Reactive reasoning is, or, or reactive systems is more um, like the kinds of things that you see like simple robots do. Like, um, oh, I've bumped into something, so I should back away and, tu- and turn in a d- different direction. Okay. So those two ways of thinking about a problem are, are fundamentally very different, right? The, the, on the one hand, we've got this kind of very slow, methodical process that's going to take a lot of computation time. It's going to be like really dense. But in the end, what I'm going to come to is I know exactly what's going to happen here. And I know that my best move to, to give me the best chance of responding to things that you might do is to, do, is to make this move right now. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, you've got this thing where it's like, oh, I bumped into something and I don't care what I was trying to do long term. And I don't really care about anything. I bumped into something, so I'm just going to turn away. And I can, I can do that reasoning super fast because that is literally like, if bump, turn away. No, no real kind of computation involved. Okay. Are they mutually exclusive? I mean, you would think they would have to work together, wouldn't they? Otherwise, you would Ah, well, welcome, welcome to the, the trick right there. Um, because the way, the way those two problem spaces work they tend to be considered to be mutually exclusive. Okay. There are aspects of an environment that are better handled reactively. So things like collisions and, and navigation-y type, like simple navigation-y type problems are better handled in that way. Uh, equally like reactive to stimulus, like, um, well, again, the bump sensor, uh, but a few, a few other things like, um, you know, I, I've detected a lot of heat, therefore I'm going to back away because I don't want my, my circuits to fry, for example. Um, so that's, that's kind of your, your quick stuff. On the other hand, like, uh, I am trying to create an AI that's going to, um, solve a maze and get to the end of the maze. And in order to get to the end of the maze, it's got to work out where it's trying to go. Uh, it's going to have locked doors in its way. It's got to go and find the key. Um, you know, that kind of longer term reasoning, it's the, the, they, Historically, they've been considered as two fairly different problem spaces. And in the case where you need to do both, effectively what there's been is um, something that arbitrates what, what mode are we in now. So we're in, uh, we're in the, the long-term problem-solving type mode. Oh, shit, something's happened. Uh, and now we need to solve the immediate problem, and then we will do the long-term problem again, and we'll go back to trying to solve uh, that in in the way that we solve those problems. So effectively, it's just a switch. It's either doing A or B. Okay. Weirdly, um, doesn't it mean that you failed in your deliberative reasoning if you have to suddenly calculate reactive? Like, does it, doesn't it mean you would kind of preclude that being a problem? I'm sorry. I just I know this has nothing no, no, to do with LGD. I just really really want to know. I mean, I can sit and talk about this for hours. Um, so the the answer is yes, but. Um, in order to in order to actually get to a point where you never have to do any kind of replanning or reactive solution, you need to consider so many facets of the world that the problem actually becomes far too big to to even be solvable. Uh, okay. um, so what you do is you start abstracting things away from the problem. Uh, so like um, I might represent. Uh, like in the so let, let's let's take that maze example I described where where you're trying to get to the end of the maze you know where that is but there's doors there's locked doors you have to go find the key all these kinds of problems there might be enemies in that world as well but I 
don't necessarily I don't have the ability to try and reason about what they're doing. So under this model, it actually makes more sense to say, okay, I'm going to ignore the enemies until they come near me. Then I'm going to solve that problem reactively. Ah. I'll, I'll run away from them and I'll shoot them or whatever the solution is. And then I'll go back to trying to solve the problem. Um, because if I try to build the enemies into the bigger solve, then it goes from like it goes from a problem that we can kind of maybe get a solution to you know, because he's searching this giant space, trying to find a way through to, to, to solve the problem that you're trying to solve. If you start adding in all these other additional variables and factors, you get to like, okay, in two years from now, I'll be able to take <laughs> You're not Barkley from Star Trek The Next Generation sitting there with the machine on. I mention this because I know you did a game called Red Shirt. I, well, so uh, I did do, well, I did a, a little bit on Red Shirt. I probably... Uh, I, I am given more credit for Redshirt than I probably deserve. Uh, but um, so Redshirt was actually quite a different problem. Um, and the thing with Redshirt, Redshirt uh, was a game which was uh, effectively uh, what if DS9 had Facebook? <laughs> it's hilarious. It really is. Oh, uh, it's it, it, I I love it as a conceit. Um, and the problem there was creating so. Uh, you're creating personas effectively for these characters and you want them to, so we, we wanted them to evolve over, well not evolve, but kind of change moods, change within the parameters of what the game was representing. Um, but to stay consistent, because uh, one thing that is a, a really weird thing around AI, um, if you're playing with players or even, even abstract it away, like if you're dealing with humans, you will give them the benefit of the doubt. Uh, so imagine that you're on Facebook yourself, and uh, one of your happy, peppy, always cheerful friends posts something really dark. <laughs> then you, you, your immediate response is, oh, geez, what's going on in this person's life? Let me reach out. Let me figure, figure it out, because clearly something is going on that has kind of disrupted this person in such a way mm -hmm. that they're acting way out of character. Now, you... Uh, you put that in the context of uh, a video game and you make, instead of it being humans, it's AI, and you lose all benefit of the doubt. So nobody will say, oh, this NPC is having a bad day to be posting like this on Facebook. <laughs> we'll say, that's shitty. This, <laughs> this is a happy person. Your and Facebook is pretty saucy. I gotta tell you, dude. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, back to the topic. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I was just—I was just trying to think about what I posted lately, but uh, I don't think it's been that bad lately. Um, anyway, uh, so so, but you get this kind of—you um, get less um, like empathy for the NPCs. Less, le less empathy, but also like uh, less room to maneuver. Um, people will give. People don't give the benefit of the doubt, and they are quick to point to it as an excuse for why suspension of disbelief has been broken. Um, and, I mean, it, it's, it's very much um, analogous. So one of the other examples that I used to kind of highlight this, this problem um, is, is the context of the thing. So I read a, a review for Crisis 2 a few... Well, um, Crisis 2, it must have been many years ago at this point. Um, but it, was, it highlighted one particular situation where uh, two soldiers walking along 
uh, obviously like out on patrol. Uh, the player comes up, has a sniper rifle, stays completely hidden, and shoots one of these soldiers that's on patrol. And the other one just keeps going around his patrol. Uh, and the, the point that was being made in the review is that's completely non-believable. Uh, you know, if, if your partner gets shot in the face, you are not just going to carry on doing your job. <laughs> um, well, I mean, you know, uh, some people have different dedications to the job. Um, but take, that, take, take exactly the same mechanical situation and instead change the context to some sort of zombie survival game. Uh, we'd pick one. Uh, it's not like you're short on, on yes. ones to Left pick. Yes, Dead 2. Okay, there we go. Um, two zombies walking along, shambling, doing the thing. Player stays out of, of sight, uses a sniper rifle, shoots one of them dead, the other one carries on. Suddenly there's, there's context that makes that make sense. Okay. And rather than... Uh, it, you know, exactly the same thing happened, but nobody's pointing fingers at the AI in this case. Um, and incidentally, like, I do think that that is partly, I, 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 I am on record previously as saying that I think that that's partly the motivation behind why there's so many zombie games around, because you can have really Just terrible like lazy AI. AI. Uh, you don't have, it, there's no, there's no need for it to get good. Um, I think that's probably just me being jaded and, uh, <laughs> and sin- um, but it is also true. Like you get so with with red shirt, we we were really, really constrained um, because we've got these same parameters where people are going to be kind of like they're expecting you to do a thing, and you've got to make sure that you're doing the thing that they expect you to do. At the same time, like you're trying to kind of figure out what that is, act within their expectations, but also achieve what you need to get done. And with red shirt, everything was being portrayed as effectively a Facebook feed, so you lose kind of. Uh, walk animations, you lose facial animations, you lose any audio. The the ways that we could express that were so constrained that it became a really interesting problem from that point of view. Awesome. So have you seen the Orville? I have not, no. I haven't uh, either. I'm almost afraid to watch. I hear I hear very well, mildly good, mildly uh mildly kind of Yeah, it's mixed for sure. Yeah. Okay, now other random questions. <laughs> cooking. I'm reading about you cooking a lot. Is this like a factor in your life? It's um, it, it was, and it's been a lot less so lately, uh, which I'm actually missing. Um, but uh, you really have done your research, jeez. <laughs> um, so yeah, so uh, I've I've kind of I, I, cooking has has been very. Um, it's a great way for me to unwind on a weekend. So, like, what I what I tend to find is that kind of uh, I'm doing long hours during the week, um, kind of really intense stuff. Uh, Saturday's kind of a day where I try and catch up on either anything that's outstanding at work or uh, catch up with Jen uh, and, and kind of move the ball on whatever's whatever she's nagging me about because I promised I would do it weeks ago and I haven't actually got to it yet. Well, you fly um, a lot, too, and travel, it sounds like. So it's tough, uh, tough to cook at home if you're traveling away. So I, I've actually been traveling a lot less lately. Um, all the kind of world travel stuff was prior to coming to Zynga. Um, uh, okay. That's so good. It, it, it is in some respects. It's it's not in others. Um, but it's the it's the change from being kind of uh, the guy who's the academic uh, talking about the theory of this thing 
to the guy who is expected to go sit in an office and actually make it happen. <laughs> okay. uh, you know, it's not. I'm actually. Um, I'm giving uh, a few sessions at Melbourne International Games Week next month. Because you uh, don't have enough to do. Uh, well, because I, I kind of wanted to get back on the road. It's been a it's been a while since I've kind of been out doing that kind of work, and I was uh, I was itching for it. So uh, I kind of talked to some folks at Zynga, and uh, uh, I'm, I, it's, but I think this might actually be the first, maybe the first talk that I've given officially as a Zynga employee. The others have been kind of talks as a as a foundation representative in in a few places and and stuff like that. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, they they want you doing the job, not talking about the job, uh, and that's yeah, it's totally fair enough, right? But um, they they are letting me back on the road a little bit uh, next month, like I say, so I'm I'm happy about that. Awesome. Okay, so the one gamer fund, the reason why we're all here, and hopefully the reason that people are checking out the games, which is below this chat right now. How did you get affiliated with this? How did you become the IGDA Foundation, become one of the charities that is now part of One Gamer Fund? So I can only give you my perspective because um, I kind of, so this is going to sound really terrible, but I kind of didn't know this was launching today until... <laughs> Uh, until I got sort of the, the message like, hey, do you want to go talk about this thing? I was like, sure. Why don't you tell me about it so I'd know what I'm talking about? Um, so uh, Jen planned it, didn't she? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah Jen, Jen's been leading all of this and, uh, and like, it, it's, it is, it will be better as a result of that, uh, but it means that I'm not super well prepared for this question. Uh but from from our perspective, I believe we uh, it, the, the One Gamer Fund was kind of an initiative uh, that uh, Seven started talking about with us. I don't know, maybe six months ago, something like that. Uh, so that's kind of when it first got on my radar that this was a thing that that might be happening. So um, my my understanding is that the kind of the the seven charities kind of came together as a result of of kind of the existing relationship between Global Game Jam and IGDA Foundation. I might be totally wrong. No, Other you're right. Might, okay, okay, well, great. Mm -hmm. uh, then I don't need to disclaimer this. No. I was like, uh, let me put a whole bunch of disclaimers in case I am wrong <laughs> no, and I'm saying correct. something politically incorrect that's going to that's gonna kind of throw somebody else under the bus. Great. Then... Um, so you, you know, guys we, had an existing relationship. I guess that's kind of where I wondered so, if, you know... Yeah, so, so actually uh, what's kind of the lesser known fact here is that the Global Game Jam was actually the part of the IGDA uh, maybe five, six years ago. Uh, oh. So the IGDA had uh, were the instigators of the, of the Global Game Jam. Well, I say that the Global Game Jam was a, a group organized under the umbrella of the IGDA. Um, and then as they kind of got bigger and bigger and kind of got to a point where they were very much their own thing, mm -hmm. it kind of made sense for them to kind of splinter off and, and become that thing. Um, Such a small a result, world of circles. Well, it, I mean, the industry is tiny, yeah, right? Yeah, it really is. Um, but because of that existing relationship and, and uh, you know, so, well, because of that existing relationship, uh, Seven had been talking to me uh, for a, a few years, very off and on, but it, uh, their background is in um, uh, non-profit uh, stuff in Boston, I believe. Mm -hmm. or yeah. Um, so kind of we'd, we'd had a, a very vague connection there. Then, then they were brought in as um, I don't actually know what the title is at Global Game Jam. I've, is it executive producer? Um, or, for seven, yeah, yeah, executive 
Yeah, I, I don't know if it's producer, but director. I believe he's director. Okay, okay. Well, somebody high in important and staff role for Global Game Jam. Uh, so that, then it became like, okay, well now not only are you a person who we should be just keeping in touch with anyway, but now we need to proactively be engaging with you. But we had the prior relationship already, both at the organizational level, but then uh, in, at the individual level. And, and with with Seven being based out of Boston, Jen's also in Boston. That meant that they actually are in a place where they can have in-person conversations, which is great. Um, so that's kind of allowed us to really develop that tie between those two organizations. Um, and then as this, as this idea kind of came together, it was like, well, who else do we involve? And if you kind of look at the list of players here, I mean, this is the who's who of game dev charities, basically. Um, you know, you've got your able gamers, which are mm-hmm. obviously big, big thing uh, for, for the industry is around accessibility and, and kind of able gamers are always at the forefront of pushing that child's play. Everybody knows child's play uh, and the work that they do. Games for Change, probably lesser known on the, on the consumer level, but kind of really driving... Uh, a lot of great stuff there um, and then you've got Take This around uh, mental health and I have to admit I don't actually, I'm not familiar enough to speak to Stack Up uh, maybe you can fill in that blank uh, They're coming on, uh, let's see, two hours from now Oh, well in two hours everybody will, will hear all about what they do and it, you know, it's definitely my fault that I've not taken the time to, to just make sure that I, I know who all the players are here um, but again this is kind of why we have Jen. <laughs> no, um, it's all good. Everyone's been on. Um, the only thing I think that the only people that we're not going to speak to today are Child's Play because I believe they have their own live stream happening on Saturday. So that's excellent. excellent. Yeah, I mean, so I am so out of to. the loop on all of this. I'm afraid. Uh, <laughs> no worries. And I, I would lo- like as soon as uh, the the kind of interview uh, this, this interview uh, came across my desk, I was like, oh. I'm going to have to do a lot of reading. <laughs> um, and, then, uh, uh, and then I'll throw her under the bus. Jen was like, oh, no, you just got to go talk about the foundation. I was like, well, okay, okay I can do that. Yes. Uh, and, and now you're asking me questions about this one okay, game of fun. Okay, sorry. Jen, no, it's, it's, I'm, I'm one year. Uh, but, yeah, so um, that's, that's the kind of background here on one game of fun. I mean, like, w- individually we can all do things, um, but particularly for making, you know, Global Game Jam, very dev-centric. I mean, I, I think that they get... Um, they get some consumer attention, particularly when kind of with the success stories that, that they put out. Uh, but the IGDA Foundation is always going to be a developer-centric organization. I, I would imagine, and I don't want to put words in their mouth, but I would imagine that kind of, to an extent, Able Gamers is kind of the same where it's not got that kind of consumer presence. Um, and I think the, the, the thing for us is like, we can do things kind of that are consumer facing and they will be not great but if we all come together and do one big thing then that kind of is going to be a benefit to everybody and that and that's kind of where um the one game of fund as, a, as an idea came from because um, you know I, I i think that the in general there are a lot of gamers out there there are a lot of consumer people who are kind of buying games and interested in games but not necessarily super engaged with behind the scenes. Um, and, uh, you know, they're not necessarily not engaged is also the wrong or possibly the wrong words. Like maybe not even interested. Why? You know, I don't know how to make a car. <laughs> and I don't need to know how to make a car to go drive. one. Yes. Um, and that's totally fine. 
you know, nobody. I should, I'm not sitting here saying, ah, you should know how to make a car, because uh, um, I don't want to sit here and do that old Yorkshire guy accent uh, for the next uh, ten minutes or so. Um, but yeah, so that, this is this is where we're at. Like, One Gamer Fund is this amazing initiative. It's great to see us like coming together and collaborating across organisations in a way that is going to be a benefit for everybody and actually get us outside of our own verticals. Like every one of us, I feel certainly it's true for the foundation. We operate kind of in a silo and, and it's the nature of the thing to an extent, because we've been very much in a, a scramble, but we need to not do that. And we need to, to kind of put together this more coherent message about how gamers can better support the industry and the way that the industry develops. And that's what it's all about to, to my mind. Awesome. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap it up. Uh, those who want to know more about the IGDA Foundation, where can they find social stuff or things that you might be putting up? So, uh, on the web, we are IGDAfoundation.org. Um, on Twitter, we are at IGDA Foundation, or one word. Uh, and then on Facebook, I don't have the tab open. That's great. Um, <laughs> I'm sure people can search for it on Facebook. So, I believe, let me just confirm that it is just uh, facebook.com slash IGDA Foundation for our page. Um, and then uh, if you have any questions at all, you can reach us there. Uh, there's email contact info on the website. Uh, and if you, you're not going to get a lot of, for anybody who's been interested in all the AI conversation, not going to get a lot of that through the foundation. Uh, so feel free to ping me directly. I am at Luke D on Twitter. Hey, well, it's been lovely speaking with you. Thank you for coming. You too. On. This has been a, this has been a great hour. Thanks a lot awesome. for taking the time, and and thank you for your support uh, in all of this. Like, you know, it, as much as I'm talking about the charities and that aspect of the One Gamer Fund, like all of this wouldn't be coming together with like people like yourself supporting it. So, so thank you very much. Oh, awesome! On behalf of Good Shepherd, well, we appreciate it. And that's it for this special episode. Uh, the next one that's coming up, you're going to hear more about Perception, which is a game from the Deep End Games with Bill Gardner and Amanda Gardner, coming to talk to us about their inspiration for the protagonist, who is Cassie, a blind uh, sojourner into this scary mansion for Perception. So stay tuned for that coming next time. <laughs>